Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 48. Before we get into today's questions, as usual, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration and uh, I want to bring your attention to a fun fact from a recent blog post. And that is that as you get fitter, you will start to sweat more, which uh, can sound a bit counterintuitive, but uh, Precision Hydration published a blog blog post called Do You Sweat More As You Get Fitter? And uh, it gives you the explanations for why that is. And uh, the the main takeaway there is that you do that to regulate core temperature. So the more you sweat, the more you can regulate core temperature, keep it down. And that's why as you get fitter, you get better at regulating that temperature, but that happens through sweating. However, the more that you sweat, then uh, that also means that you need to pay more attention to your fluid and electrolyte needs. And that's what precision hydration can help you with, with their free online sweat test to give you recommendations for how much fluid and electrolytes to consume uh, during extended exercise or races. And uh, you can find them and the test on precisionhydration.com, answer the 10 questions or so that's in that quiz and get the recommendation. And then just give Precision Hydration a try and, and see if uh, it uh, works for you. You can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code thattriathlonshow20. And that's only valid through the end of August. So a few days left, a week or so by the time that this episode goes out to, uh, to take advantage of that. You can also get your first box or two for free with the promo code thattriathlonshow, all on word, all caps. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Today, as part of Roka's Details Matter campaign, I want to talk about the Gen 2 Elite tri-suit. And this detail is sent in from Sean at events. And he writes, I can't get over the silicone print on the inside of the legs on the Gen 2 Elite race apparel. I raced Ironman Arizona in this suit and the legs never rode up and never chafed. Plus, uh, the no-su finish looks sleek, but still offers compression. Roka put a great amount of uh, time, money, and effort into many, many, many tiny details like this, which uh, adds up to really, really great products for endurance athletes, uh, whether it's wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, high-performance eyewear, you name it. Uh, it goes across the board, and you can find their products on roka.com, as mentioned. And you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. The first question for today is from Mikko in Finland who writes, how should one train to lower VLA max on the run? First, just a quick repetition about VLA max for those that don't know or don't remember. Uh, If you want the longer explanation, definitely go and listen to episode 169 with Sebastian Weber. I'll link to it in the episode description. That's where you get get all the information about that. But to give you the short explanation, it's the rate that you can at which you can produce lactate. So your maximum rate at which you can you can produce lactate. So it's not your maximum lactate concentration; it's the rate at which you can produce lactate. And why would you want to lower that rate? Well, because having a lower VLA max makes you sort of more of like a diesel engine, and as triathletes. That's really what we, we in general want to become. There are exceptions. You can go too low. There is too much of, of a good thing. There is such a thing. Uh, but in general, if you lower it and uh, you're not at that level yet, 
that will increase your fractional utilization of your maximum aerobic capacity that is your vo2 max so in other words you will increase your anaerobic threshold and you will move it closer to your to your aerobic capacity and it will also decrease your carbohydrate utilization at submaximal intensities and instead increase your fat oxidation at those submaximal intensities so that's the short explanation for what it is and why you would want to lower it and that is why Mikko is asking about it because he knows that well it, it lowering it might be beneficial so how do we go about it? Well, it really is with workouts that are very much corresponding to the ones that we talked about in episode 169 for cycling. So strength endurance type workouts, it means doing tempo runs, for example, so accumulating extended durations at moderate intensities. So tempo runs, and we're not necessarily talking just 20 minutes, but actually this is quite timely because we just had Matt uh, from Sweat Elite on talking about how the elite runners do really, really long tempo runs. So I think that's something that we can take away from that episode for sure, that uh, that you can you can build your diesel engine to be even better by doing those tempo runs to be longer. And that means don't try to overshoot the intensity on the tempo runs. Try to go for duration rather than intensity on those tempo runs. So tempo runs is uh, one key thing or moderate intensity training in general. In cycling, we have uh, things like low cadence work is uh, a very familiar way uh, to, to decrease VLA max. You could do that on hills or on the indoor trainer or into headwinds. Uh, but uh, we don't quite have that in running, but we do have hills. And that works to our advantage as runners when we try to lower VLA max. So that is a great way to go about lowering VLA max by just running a lot of hills because that will, well, first of all, I should say that you can do this as part of your normal endurance runs or long runs. It doesn't always have to be specific hill workouts. It can just be choosing a hilly route for your run. And uh, I do know that uh, most people, including myself, don't live where we can do 15 minute repeats uphill uh, easily and, and repeat that sort of workout. So just choosing a hilly course, running up and down hills, they'll cause you that when you're going uphill, you will work at higher force outputs and that will then activate those fast twitch fibers. And eventually the stimulus may be big enough to make those fast twitch fibers more endurance-like, which is what happens on a, a cellular level when we are talking about lowering VLA max. Of course, you can also combine the two, which is actually one of my favorite workouts. So doing hilly tempo runs. So you could do something like a continuous tempo run on hilly terrain, like a one hour tempo, or do something like four times 15 minutes uh, or hilly terrain and do them at a tempo effort. So you don't need to be concerned about perfect pacing. You don't need to worry if your heart rate is higher going uphill and lower going downhill. You don't need to worry if your power, if you're using running power, is higher going uphill when, than, it's, than it is when you're going downhill. Uh, just run at a solid zone-free moderate intensity effort and try to accumulate duration there. And actually, the uphills can and maybe should feel harder than the downhills. But uh, remember to still keep the foot on the gas in downhill so that you're not just jogging or cruising, but keep your effort at and heart rate at a decent level. If you don't have any hills at all around you to, to work on hill running, whether it's as part of normal easier endurance runs, long runs, or tempo runs, as just discussed, then a good idea might actually be to do this sort of hilly tempo run just described 
indoors on the treadmill. I remember, remember personally doing a lot of indoor hill running in the final months before my personal best half marathon race. And uh, well, that's some time ago now. That was 2015, but I haven't run a half marathon since 2015. So I'm actually quite keen on trying that, giving that a go in the winter. Perhaps we will see. Either way, uh, that using a treadmill to get your hilly tempo runs in, uh, that can be a good way to work on VLA Max if you don't really have a good hilly courses to run on. And uh, I think personally, I felt those runs made me really, really strong and well prepared for running a good half marathon. So uh, that's it. Hope that answers your question, Miko. Thank you for that. And the next one is from Roger in Minnesota. Roger writes, you did a great job in episode 193 of summarizing the performance benefits of caffeine and guidelines and amounts before and during a race from studies. I had a quick follow-up question that might be a useful Q&A episode item. Can you comment on whether it is important for athletes to be at a low level of daily caffeine consumption to see these effects? Uh, For example, if I have two to three cups of coffee a day normally, will that minimize the ability to see the benefits? I have heard some pros talking about cutting out caffeine in the month before Kona or a big race to maximize the impact of caffeine on race day. Thank you, Roger, for your question. That is a really interesting one. And uh, yeah, I made sure to uh, go through some studies that I've read uh, in the past, but didn't quite remember exactly to make sure that I got uh, the gist of it right. And I guess the gist of it uh, is that the answer to this question is clear as mud. So uh, I guess that we don't really need to see the world as it is. At this point in time, we can all choose our own preferred reality, uh, which uh, for me would mean keeping my coffee routines. Uh, No, but in all seriousness, there really isn't super clear evidence either way, because results are quite mixed. Uh, There is, uh, for example, one study from 2017 by a team in Sao Paulo, Uh, that is called Dispelling the Myth that Habitual Caffeine Consumption Influences the Performance Response to Acute Caffeine Supplementation. So what they did was they took 40 male endurance-trained cyclists and uh, they allocated these into three different levels of daily caffeine intake. So low intake, which was 58 uh, plus minus 29 milligrams per day. That was the standard, uh, the, the average or the mean plus minus standard deviation. Uh, moderate was 143 plus minus 25 milligrams per day and high caffeine consumption was 351 plus minus 139 milligrams per day. Then these participants, they did three uh, 30 minute time trials on the bike and uh, they did that following ingestion of uh, either one of the following, which was caffeine in the amount of six milligram per kilogram body weight or a placebo or a no supplement at all. So a pure control group where they didn't even get the the placebo effect. So when these athletes uh, had caffeine as uh, the thing that they ingested before the time trials, they went 2.5% faster on average as a whole group compared to the placebo condition and 3.3% faster compared to the no supplement at all control condition. And uh, the researchers then did a lot of statistical analysis of uh, the various results and the different groups uh, that they that they created based on daily caffeine consumption. 
And they find, found that the low, moderate, and high caffeine consumers showed similar absolute and relative improvements in cycling time trial performance following acute supplementation of 6 mg per kilogram body mass of caffeine. Performance effects of acute caffeine were not influenced by the level of habitual caffeine consumption, uh, suggesting that high habitual caffeine intake does not negate the benefits of acute caffeine supplementation. Uh, one thing that is quite interesting here is the role of individual variation, because overall about half of the cyclists saw a caffeine-fueled boost in performance that was greater than the natural variation in repeated time trial results, which according to this study is about 3%. So that's what you can expect if you just repeat time trials in a control condition. Uh, so that's sort of a, a, an error source that they need to take into account. Uh, the other half, uh, they mostly saw indeterminate results, so could, couldn't quite tell whether whether they had a benefit or not. And a small number, four of the 40 athletes, actually saw negative results, so they decreased their performance by more than 3%, which was that error margin. And uh, this study is uh, good in that it had uh, three different groups, including a placebo group and a pure control group, and 40 cyclists, uh, so it's the biggest study that I know on this topic. And uh, it is consistent with some findings that uh, caffeine boosts performance for a lot of people, but not for everybody. And so there are groups of people that it doesn't help, and it may even slow down a few. And the variation in that other study that I remember reading had nothing to do with habitual caffeine consumption, but instead it depends on certain gene variants that influence how quickly you metabolize caffeine. So an interesting takeaway message from this study is that if you don't feel that the caffeine helps you, you may well be right. Uh, because just because it works for well for, for quite a lot of people, it does not mean by any means that it works for everybody. So that's evidence uh, against the fact that cutting out caffeine would be beneficial or that not cutting out caffeine would uh, dampen the effects of the acute caffeine supplementation. However, there is also evidence on the contrary. So this is a 2019 study called Time Course of Tolerance to the Performance Benefits of Caffeine. And this is from a team in Madrid. This study only had 11 participants. So that's uh, not a big number, but they do have a lot of data points uh, because what they did was to put these participants through two separate 20-day periods. And for one of these 20-day periods, they took three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram body weight uh, per uh, per day. And for the other uh, period, they took a placebo uh, supplement. All these participants, all 11, were habitually very light caffeine users. And between these two 20-day periods, they had seven days of what's called a washout period. Before and after the study, and uh, three times a week during the study, the participants completed a VO2 max test and a 15-second all-out sprint, and they did this indoors on an exercise bike. And uh, the researchers then tracked how the performance uh, benefits from caffeine would or would not change throughout that uh, that 20-day period when uh, when the participants took caffeine or did not take caffeine. So. Uh, Imagine this, you are very light or non-consumer of caffeine habitually, and then you start taking this caffeine supplement, three milligrams per kilogram body weight per day, which uh, if you're a 70 kilogram uh, person, for example, that turns out to be 210 milligrams, which is uh, 
a decent amount of caffeine, so that would have been classified as a high uh, caffeine consumption in the previous study we talked about. So uh, does this mean that uh, when you do the, the time trial before, on or the first time trial, the first time you have consumed caffeine and you're habitually a no or light caffeine consumer, that you get a bigger benefit than you get when you do one of those at the end of the 20-day period, where every single day during that period you've, you've supplemented with caffeine, with quite a lot of caffeine. That's basically the question that they wanted to answer. And, uh, and when we look at the results uh, for, for different things, for VO2 max, for the power at VO2 max or peak power, which is the, uh, the highest power that they reached during that VO2 max test and the sprint power, which is the, the average power for the, for the short sprint that they did. We do see a pattern. And by the way, I'll link to both of these studies and you can uh, look at the figures and, uh, and see these. Uh, the subjects get a big boost from caffeine in the first few days. And then the effect that they get, it starts to taper off, but it never gets to zero. So, uh, they they still get a performance benefit. It's just not quite as large as during the first few days of uh, of that twenty day period where they where they don't have that background of having consumed caffeine habitually day after day. And uh, looking at uh, looking at the charts, for example, this is not something that is statistically significant or anything. That day twenty equals day six, but if we just look at the chart, that's that's the way it looks like. So uh, so at day six it has tapered off to a certain level and then it stays there throughout the, the rest of the 20-day period. And th these results seem to indicate that caffeine tolerance may decrease the effect that you get from caffeine supplementation, but not eliminate the effects completely. Uh, but what we need to keep in mind here is that this does not answer the question at all about how long you should abstain from caffeine if you need to do it. That's not a question that can be answered by the data from this study. Uh, and uh, that might depend on your habitual level as well. And it's not a question that has been answered, uh, to be honest, in, in the studies so far. So uh, clear as mud, as I said at the beginning. My take is that uh, I want to feel good in general leading up to a race. And if I lose a percent by not abstaining from caffeine in race week, I'll take that. Uh, the comfort of my normal routine and the feel-good factor in the week leading up to the race more than makes up for that, in my opinion. Uh, and I have done the abstaining from caffeine thing. And uh, and I do think based on, on that personal experience that I do better uh, with keeping my caffeine, my normal caffeine routines and still supplementing with caffeine. And I do feel that I still get an effect doing that. And I will definitely change my opinion when we get convincing evidence for otherwise. But uh, as discussed here, we have mixed results and... Uh, you can choose how you want to see the world in this particular instance, I guess. Uh, that's what I jokingly said at the beginning. So thank you, Roger, for your question. I'm sorry that it might not have uh, answered the question, but, uh, uh, well, not uh, given you a specific uh, action guide, at least, or step-by-step, -step, this is what to do, but uh, hopefully food for thought, at least. And that's it for questions for this week. I want to thank you again, everybody who have been leaving ratings and reviews. There were quite a few coming in these last couple of weeks, and I'm really, really appreciative of that. Uh, so I'm going to read one, which uh, says, binge-worthy, five stars. This is from Eric52 in the US, who writes, better than a binge-worthy show on Netflix. That travel show has so much quality content, and it is certainly helping shorten my learning curve. Thank you, TTS. Uh, 
Thank you, Eric, for that. Really appreciate it. And also thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get uh, your personalized hydration and electrolyte strategy. And use the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW20 to get 20% off your entire order. Only valid until the end of August, so hurry up. Or to try your first box or tube for free, use the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. If you're looking for things in uh, the categories of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, then look no further. Go to Roka and take 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.